This is Event Masters. Behind the scenes stories, experiences, and lessons shared by the world's leading event experts. Hosted by Christian Napier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Event Masters. I am Christian Napier, and I am super stoked for our next guest, Chris Crowley, who is joining us today from Park City. Chris, how are you doing? Greetings, and thank you. For those of you who don't know who Chris Crowley is, for one of the five people on earth who don't know him yet, uh, Chris, he's been in events for a long time. He actually got started as an intern with the uh, when he was at San Francisco what is it? San Francisco Convention Facilities. Correct. And the there was Moscone a big earthquake. And, yeah, Moscone yeah, Center. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about yeah. that earthquake in a second. Great. And uh, that kind of got you into this business. I met you when you worked at uh, Salt Lake 2002, the mm -hmm. Salt Lake 2002 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games. But before that, you worked Sydney. Since then, you worked Vancouver. You worked Rio and tons of other events. Too many to list here because if we listed them all, that's all we would be doing. We'll be listing all the events that you worked on. Anything from conventions, trade shows, concerts, festivals, uh, sport events, political events, community events. Oh, and then there's this little thing, uh, this 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 thing that happened in 2020 that rhymes with Rovid uh, yeah. that you've been dealing with in a unique capacity. We'll get into that as well. Uh, Chris uh, Crowley is currently serving as the emergency manager of public health for the summit county health department here in the state of utah and uh, chris uh, we're delighted and i'm so thrilled to have you joining us to share your stories today thanks christian i'm happy to be here and you know on our la the last uh, visit we had i i think that was a a successful uh, podcast as well so looking forward to another one well, I'm looking forward to it as well. You know, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this this role that you're in, uh, being an emer emergency manager, public health up there in Summit County. Uh, it's kept you very busy the last few years, this whole crazy COVID pandemic. Yeah, that that's the truth. And um, I guess I, I'm going to dip a little bit into my past and into my current and future, I guess. Um I had a really peculiar beginning in the event world in that I got an internship to work at the Moscone Convention Center in San Francisco. And I started and just a few months later, we had a huge earthquake, uh, 7.0 in the city. And, um, you know, we were hosting a convention, water pollution control, uh, with about 25, 30,000 people. And we went from this very um, sort of of well choreographed uh, planned event into complete and utter uh, natural disaster chaos. And, you know, this, this was my first sort of introduction to events and into disasters. And literally those two parallel, I, I, I consider them parallel uh, courses because what happened was I learned how to do event planning and I learned how to do event management. And over the years, I've I've gone through and gone to school and gotten my my certifications and such. And I found that these two things go hand in hand all the time. And it's it's really worked out quite well, and and certainly helped me uh, not only on the Olympic and big event planning piece, but 
also for the pandemic and serving as the emergency manager for the health department here, as we tried to put together our plans for to respond to the to the um, pandemic, I realized that Olympic planning or you know big event planning is exactly the same as planning for a health disaster, and I did exactly what we do in our organizing committees. I compartmentalized the the elements. We we established our goals, of course. Compartmentalized who was going to do what, where, when, how. Uh, started creating schedules and and operational plans around that. Then we integrate everybody into a you know a, a venue team, if you will. Although the venue is a is a disaster. Um, and then we deliver upon those expectations, just like we would do for an event and or for the Olympic Games. We, were, you know, we had test events um, where we we literally tested people, or we did some smaller uh, vaccination clinics. But then ultimately, we launched and um, you know invited people to come to our vaccination clinic here in Summit County, and it worked. I, I mean, I I brought in. The architects that we used um, during the Salt Lake 2002 games, and we we drew venues using the same templates as we used for the 2002 and subsequent uh, Olympic um, planning, it, and it worked out great. Um, it, you know, it was a rewarding experience for me. Certainly, it, it seems odd to say that because you know, pandemic. COVID wasn't necessarily rewarding um, from the standpoint of, you know, medals and cheering, um, but it was rewarding from from the event standpoint and the fact that I was able to use the skills that I had, develop these plans to, to serve our community, and we did just that. And we ended up um, sort of patting myself on the back here. We were the most efficient clinic operations and response in Utah, and we we exceeded um the the clinics and and the counties that were far larger than than summit county and you know that that's a a great feeling for somebody who plans events for a living all right well i want to dig into this a little bit more and the parallel parallels and the differences between the earthquake uh which uh many people outside of the bay area may recall from if I remember correctly, uh, the World Series was going on at that time, was it not? It uh, was. Over across the bay. And so, uh, uh, you know, and it had massive impacts, not just mm -hmm. on that venue, but all, you know, the really that entire bay area was, yeah. was, was impacted there. But the thing is with an earthquake, it happens. There may be aftershocks, um, but there's been a history of earthquakes and, and we have some knowledge about how to deal with them. This pandemic thing was a bit strange in that, okay, it, it comes, we, we think, Oh, you know, when it, it's not going to be a problem. Oh, it got here. Okay. We're shutting things down. We're going to shut down for a week or two and then we'll come out and life will slowly go back to normal. And that's not exactly what happened. Right. Uh, so I'm curious how you dealt with the uncertainty, you know, because, you come into this early on, your event planning is fantastic, but with an event, you know, okay, well, it has mm -hmm. to be delivered by such and such a date. Uh, with this pandemic thing, the information was not complete and the situation kept evolving over time. So how did you 
continue to be proactive while at the same time being reactive when you had new information coming in, you may have to update your plans. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a really good question because what happened was I was actually hired by the Summit County Health Department to write a pandemic plan and, and a plan for use of the, of the federal strategic national stockpile. And those plans were very similar to Olympic uh, venue and, and operational planning. And, and I really, like I said earlier, I, I, I took that experience I had from the Olympics to write those initial plans. The idea behind any plan, even, and especially if we're, we're talking about events is that we have to be, we have to be prepared for, for changes. We have to be prepared for contingencies. And, and I know that there's a lot of discussion around contingency planning, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that contingency planning is the plan. And if you don't expect something to change, you're, you're not in the right business and, and you're certainly going to be surprised needlessly, I will say. So anyway, in, in 2010 and 2011, I wrote these, these, these pandemic plans and by the time you know we we got we got grant money to support them and to to um build up our capabilities and training around that um and then when the pandemic rolled around we we had a foundation plan to work from so we knew the basics of pandemic response because we had already participated in H1N1 and, and a number of, of lower level um uh pandemics and i don't mean to to uh take away from from the severity of things like h1n1 people died and and it's very unfortunate of course but we had this foundation plan to work from and then ultimately what i did with our our plans was I went through and we had, you know, we have with a pandemic, it's not like an earthquake. The earthquake happens and you're immediately engaged and you have to start, you know, opening shelters. And that's really what we did for in San Francisco at the convention center. We opened up this shelter immediately for 5,000 people. They stayed with us for a week and until other arrangements could be made um, and the city could, could begin the recovery process. Um, with the pandemic, we have a little bit more lead time. We know that there's lead time, even if the vaccine was available, there's still space that, that gives you the opportunity to gather your teams together, to start making assignments and, and to really look deep into the, deeply into those plans and understand what's changed. Um, you know, who are the populations that are, are the most vulnerable, what kind of, of resources and and uh, training are we going to need, and how will we ultimately deliver this? Um, you know, the lead time for developing new, a new vaccine it was you know roughly a year to two years to three years to a, a big question mark, but it did give us this this sort of ability to start. And as we started, we 
again, I put together our teams. We started to divvy up the responsibilities based on, you know, what people's specialties were or what partner organizations could provide what. And, and we did, in fact, get this, you know, we had a couple of opportunities to test our systems in, in that the, the COVID tests became available uh, much earlier, obviously, than the, than the vaccine itself. And what I did with the COVID test was gather up a big stockpile of tests, and then we went out and had COVID testing events where we invited the public in uh, different areas to come in, and, and we basically ran it the same as we would with um, the vaccination clinic. And quite frankly, it was very similar to uh, um, you know, an Olympic event where people are, are in a location, then they need to get transported to the venue, they need to enter the venue, watch the event or get a get a test or a shot, and then they leave the venue and you know hopefully we're we're done after that. Um, so again, that gave us this ability to create some some smaller scale test events go back and and sort of tweak our our plans and and reinvent some of those wheels and then ultimately deliver um once the the vaccine and we once the vaccine was available and we were able to actually bring the the um community in to, um by prior, priority group and deliver the vaccines as necessary well, uh, it was a tremendous effort, and congratulations. You mentioned uh, that uh, the county performed, uh, I don't remember what the specific measures were, but it performed admirably well here in the state of Utah yeah. uh, compared to the other counties. And so congratulations on delivering that. So, and as you mentioned- Kristen, if I can, if I can actually interrupt there, I, I, the county was absolutely instrumental and they were supportive of the entire effort, but- we would not have been as successful as we were if it weren't for the volunteers. And our, our volunteer base was phenomenal. The community came out in droves to help in every way imaginable. And, you know, it, it did give me sort of the goosebumps thinking, about, thinking back about how the volunteers in Salt Lake really stepped up to the plate uh, at the Salt Lake Olympics. And they were the ones who, who really they did the heavy lifting for us, right? We, we, we take the credit, but they did the heavy lifting. And the same is true for, uh, for our pandemic effort. So I felt really comfortable, um, even though I'm not a medical professional, so to speak, I'm, I'm a health, public health professional, but I felt really comfortable with being able to do the job that I was tasked with to lead this, this uh, uh, pandemic response because I had done it before. Well, let's talk about the the process that you went through to build this foundation, because as you mentioned, really uh, over the past 30 years, you acquired the skills and experience that you needed yeah. uh, to help the county get through a very, very difficult time. So it all starts with this huge earthquake. You're an intern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're doing this earthquake thing. So, uh, uh, you know, going back even before then, what was it that 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 uh, 
inspired you or motivated you or intrigued you about, hey, I want to intern for uh, at the Moscone uh, Convention Center, you know, because, you know, you can intern for a lot of things. Yeah. So, so did you already have some interest or experience in events that led you to do this internship, which then, uh, as you said, uh, kind of hooked you uh, in, mm -hmm. in, in this crazy industry that we're working in? Um, th this is going to sound kind of sad, um, but it was a paid internship. That was my hook. And, you know, I, I was a carpenter my most of my my young life uh, and all the way up until that time. And I knew at some point I needed to get into, you know, some level of business, not just swinging a hammer and and digging holes. So I, I just went to our our internship department at San Francisco State University and they laid out a couple of different opportunities for me. One of them happened to be at Moscone and I signed up for it. I went in for an interview. It was a, I thought it was a okay interview, but then I didn't hear back. I didn't hear back from anyone. And so I just chalked that up to, you know, oh, well, I didn't have any experience anyway. About a month later, I get a call. I'd been out with my friends all night, and I, I get a call at like 7 o'clock in the morning from this guy, and he says, hey, how you doing? He's screaming on the phone. And I, I like, who is this, and why are you calling me? And I, I, I used a couple of choice words in there that I'll, I'll skip for this podcast. But uh, And uh, he said, the guy on the phone says, oh, so I guess you don't want to work at the Moscone Center no more. And I'm like, no, 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 I do, I do, I do. And he says, great, I'll see you Monday. And he hangs up. And this was the guy that I, who, who was eventually my boss. And, and uh, I showed up on Monday. I'd never, I'd, I don't even think I owned a tie at that time. I show up in my bright, shiny little tie. And I said, hey, I'm here. And nobody knew he had hired me. And he went on vacation for two weeks. <laughs> so... So they didn't know what to do with me. Then the housekeeping manager walked by and he said, I'll take him. And I literally spent my first two weeks at the convention center learning from the bottom up. And it was a fantastic education because I understand now how to clean large and small spaces, how crews operate, how the communication um, at that at that lowest level really transpires and a lot of the other other work that you know me as a, a fancy college graduate, I probably wouldn't have been interested in in getting into that kind of depth, but I did, and to this day I'm thankful for that for that moment where I got hired, and David, my boss, went on vacation, and you know it really it, it did inspire me. You know, again I started at the bottom learned and and ultimately became the director of events there and then suddenly a, a call out of the blue to come to this to the olympics which i think All in right. the event world is kind of you know that you're you're meeting the this pinnacle. is this is absolutely crazy because your career could have gone across the spectrum you could still be swinging a hammer 
you could have been doing something completely different. It just happened that the wheel of fortune spun to Moscone. You're like, okay, well, let's try that one. And then you get hired. So you mentioned that you eventually became the director of events there. So how did you go from being paid intern person to actually staying on, becoming a permanent staff <laughs> hire, and then eventually becoming the director of events? Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I became hooked immediately, right? I, even during the interview, I thought, wow, this is an amazing world that I never knew about, you know, seeing these events come in and out. And I mean, massive events with millions of pounds of freight coming in in three days, having a show for three or four days and then out in two. And then the other one comes in right on the tail of it. So I knew that I liked that. And I liked the planning aspect. I'd really only done construction planning up until that point. But one of the things that I realized was there's so much information flowing through the, the convention center and, and so many different scenarios and fires that need to be put out and, and, you know, people who are, you know, he said, she said, what about this? What about that? And the first thing I started doing was hoarding information. So if you wanted to know technical specs on something, I had it, right? Go talk to the intern. And if you wanted to know about the floor loads or what was inside of the electrical boxes or what was the, uh, you know, how much time did it take for a show with 1.7 million pounds of freight to come in or come out? I, I started collecting that data and, and you know, what that did was start to shape my, my, perspective on planning and, and scheduling and, and creating, um, you know, time in motion and, and understanding what it was going to take for us to accomplish any given event, no matter how technical it was. And so I, I guess I, I started to make myself invaluable. My internship ended and nobody told me to leave. So I didn't. And I literally worked, I was an intern, I guess, for 11 years. Um, because nobody told me to leave and nobody told me my internship was over. Um, but from there, I, I, I got an opportunity to lead a couple of the um, uh, different uh, uh, labor crews at the, at the convention center. So that gave me this, uh, you know, introduction to real uh, leadership and, and responsibilities that, you know, not just to get the work done, but, to the crew who are getting the work done and how to interact with them to either, you know, support the efforts that they're, they're putting forth or to, to manage the challenges of being human. And, you know, the, those were some of those, those really important uh, lessons that I learned along the way. And from there, I, I just continued climbing the ladder you know, eventually becoming an event manager to help out, you know, to, to plan uh, with clients and then the director of, uh, of the facility, which was an executive level um, job, which I loved it. And I, and I had a fantastic boss who's my mentor. Um, and 
when I ultimately went to, you know, the games, I took all those lessons that I had, had learned at the Moscone Center and applied them. And of course, you know, I had to be open-minded and reshape the way I thought about events because I was going from a provider, um, from a provider's perspective to a plan and event owner's perspective at the games. But, you know, I, I had a very well-rounded uh, education and, you know, to this day, I still apply those lessons that I learned on my first day following the housekeeping um, manager around. You mentioned that your boss was your mentor. And I, I like to ask people about mentors because I think mentors are so important. And, and so you know, what was it about him uh, that made him a mentor? And what were some of the the stories or the lessons that you learned from him that helped shape your career since mm -hmm. then? I think first and foremost was just confidence and trust. Like he, he told me here's the project and he didn't know whether I had the, the actual capabilities. He just assumed that, you know, you went to college, you should be a smart guy. Here is you know, we, we were expanding the convention center at that time. So one of my projects was going through and establishing how much FF&E we needed, furniture, fixtures, and equipment, right? All of the temporary uh, furnishings that we need to set a ballroom, for instance, that's 5,000 square feet. That's a lot of equipment. Um, and the challenge that we have in San Francisco, of course, is that everything is compact and everybody is is basically living and working on top of each other so storage is almost non-existent so our first challenge was get enough furniture to set you know uh classroom and theater rooms in a breakout facility of uh, 56 meeting rooms and then have the flexibility to then open that space up into one big room and not have that equipment in there, but it has to go somewhere. Um, so those are, those are like these little, little intricacies that I don't think people quite understand is that just because a facility has 10,000 chairs, um, they don't always have them on site because they don't have storage and it's not feasible for us to go pick them up at a warehouse and drive them out. And then two days later, do that same thing. And then two days after that, do it again. So th those kinds of lessons, um, you know, a lot of it was trial by fire. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest about it, but he trusted me. And when I would present my plan for whatever it was, or maybe I was looking through some, some budget elements, um, he let me run with it. And, you know, a lot of times it was sink or swim. And I, I, I will say I sunk a couple of times. There's no question about it. Um, but, you know, again, if you're open, if you're open minded and you're willing to learn, even a failure can be helpful in that, you know, you learn, huh, I probably don't want to do that the next time. You know, All I, right, I, I have to ask about, I have to ask, do you have any specific examples they they couldn't have been massive failures, right? Because I mean, then the guy wouldn't trust you, and you'd be like, "You're out of a job," yeah. or, or so. But but okay, yeah, maybe maybe there were some some mistakes made, or some you know something happened, but you were able to recover yeah. from those. But you know, what were 
what you know what was one of those times where it didn't work out but you learned something that you said okay well the next time we do this we're gonna yeah, we're this, gonna handle it differently i might be reaching a little bit but i think this is a it's it's an interesting and somewhat entertaining story so here i am new guy and i'm suddenly I, I have this crew of people that are, are responsible for basically it's called the event detailing where we clean all of the convention the night before to make sure everything is shiny and all the booths are, are ready to go for the big grand opening that next day. And so I had a crew of, uh, I want to say they're anywhere from 30 to 40 people at any given time. And I had this great idea. I'm going to work with, um, with one of the uh, rehabilitation um, organizations in the city of uh, city of San Francisco, and and I'm going to take people who are uh, coming out of prison, and they're going to get these jobs, and they're going to you know learn how to ultimately to work their way up to becoming like the operations crew or the or work in our food and beverage department, but they're literally getting that for that chance. And so I bring in all these people and, and it's working pretty good. At least I think so. And then I, I, um, I come across a couple of like oddities and I, I realize that there's a, a fair number of people who can't read. And, and so I think, well, I need to, you know, how, how can I, how can I help that? Because we, we hand a plan and tell people to do something. And we had people who were just doing all the work that we had ever done over and over and over again. And that wasn't what they needed to do. So they were really working much harder than they needed to. So I work it out with the San Francisco Library to bring in an adult uh, reading program to the facility. We're going to do it um, uh, one hour before the shift starts, I get my boss to agree that we'll actually pay people to be there for that first hour. And I think, oh, I'm, this is going to be great. I make these posters and, you know, I'm patting myself on the back when I stick it, I stick the posters up in the, in the um, break room. And, and I'm just so excited to, you know, do this adult learning program. Not one person signs up. Not even one. Nobody even asked me about it. And I'm thinking, wow, what what in the world did I do wrong? And I a couple of, you know, maybe a week goes by of zero takers. And uh I I go and find one of my one of my key supervisors, one of the right hand men, and I said, you know, why isn't anybody signing up for the the reading program? And he he looks at me and he said, You're an idiot. First of all, you put a poster up that says, come to the adult reading. They can't read. And I said, oh, geez, I didn't even think that. That, that is ridiculous. And uh, I said, oh, I got to change that immediately. And he said, well, hold on. Which one of these, what, which one of these guys who, you know, some of them are gang members, some of them are just, you know, hard, hard people and, uh, you know, and and they have pride. He said, which one of them is going to raise their hand and say, I can't read? And I thought, oh my God, that's, that's true too. 
and I had to fold the whole thing up because it just, it, there was no interest and no opportunity there. Ultimately, a couple of people came to me on the side and, and I, I, I uh, pointed them in the direction of the library so that they wouldn't have to, you know, stand up in front of everybody else. But that was a huge lesson for me, right? That I had, I had just immediately assumed I'm doing this great thing. Everybody's going to be so happy about it. And it just didn't turn out that way. Um, uh, again, a few people did, did take some steps, but I don't think that is credit to me in any way. Well, what it did is opened your eyes to take into consideration human nature, right? Exactly. Uh, so your, your aims were very, very noble. And, uh, so you put together a plan that seemed to make sense to you not understanding what might necessarily make sense to the people who are involved. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic lesson. All right. So you're there for 11 years coming back. You don't stay there for your entire career. Uh, an opportunity presents itself and you make a move. So why don't you tell us the story behind transitioning out of this role uh, as the director of events in Moscone. You've been there for 11 years and hopping into uh, Olympic games. Yeah. Um, it, it was really peculiar. I, I knew the Olympics were going to be in Salt Lake, um, but it just never dawned on me that I should, you know, make the effort to, to put my name in the hat. And out of the blue, I got a call from Doug Arnott, and he said that I, I had been recommended by Beth White who worked for the for the uh for the Olympic Committee and I knew Beth White because she also worked for the Salt Palace that we worked in this you know this little convention circle and um you know that it, it was kind of out of the blue I didn't know Beth that well and um you know kudos to her making that that uh recommendation and to Doug calling me and like I said earlier when you're in that event world, suddenly somebody asks you to work on this amazing global specter and how can you say no? And so I, I took the chance and I moved, you know, I, I was born and raised in San Francisco. That was the first time I moved away. And um, obviously I loved it. I'm still here. Wow. Well, that, that's a big change. What did they want you to do? So it, it was operational planning. So it was, you know, the venue management team. And um, at that point, um, you know, I was a big skier and snowboarder. So I had, I had connection to the, to the snow, I guess, but I never really worked in like a FIS event or things like that. Um, and I think that the, the thing that was probably the biggest draw for Salt Lake was I did have all these written plans. I had, training manuals that I had put together and, and event, um, event packages that, that allowed us to, to, you know, set up for these big conventions. And, uh, I had set up an entire CAD system with all the different drawings and, and taught all of my, my event management team to, to use a CAD system so that we had extremely accurate, um, event plans all the time. Um, 
you know, and so those kinds of things are, are as you know, we live and die by those schedules and by the information and by our ability to coordinate and communicate with our with our teammates and the best you know the foundation starts with those plans um you know so so that was you know my first introduction and i was thrust into this this olympic world and um you know i i feel fortunate that i worked with a number of people like like i guess i would call them the the legends of of games planning in the U.S., you know, people like Doug and and Jim Brown and Richard Bessemer and Colin Hilton and yourself, of course, and you know Darren Hughes and and uh, Dave Gustafson. I can go on and on and on, and and also you know all these folks coming from Sydney as well, Adam Gray and Nick Martin, um, just and, and Alan Brooks and you know Lou Loria, all these people who who had experience and they were so willing to share and that was such an an amazing experience for me and you know when i think back on that i i can't even i can't even fathom the amount of information that these people shared with me and you know we all grew uh through that process as well so you know it was a mutual um sort of growth and development program here in Salt Lake and the fact that Mitt and you know Mitt Romney and, and Fraser Bullock supported these efforts throughout the entire process just made it so much easier and and you know they 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 were there to to help us get past the roadblocks and they were also there to support the crazy initiatives that we put together and you know park city is a great example working working with uh, christy nicolay we came up with this great idea of putting a full concert in the middle of the venue in the middle of the uh, of the competition and then creating tiered um standing room snow tiers so that people could see into the um into the half pipe while while that competition was going on that had never been done before and they were so supportive and they just let us go with it and you know and and again that goes back to that that trust thing and you know the willingness to let us let us experiment and when it worked it worked well i'm really curious how that comes about you you come with your own background, your experience, your expertise coming from uh, an event, but not a sport event uh, environment. Then you've got people coming from Sydney with their Olympic experience. You have people coming from Atlanta, uh, perhaps World Cup 94. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so you have people coming from lots of different places with a lot of different perspectives. If it's not managed right, that could just be a that could be a disaster, right? Everybody coming in saying, well, this is how it should be done. Well, no, this is how we did it over here. You know, so, so how did you get this all figured out that you could, you could work together because you came from so many different uh, backgrounds and experiences? I, I'm going to say that, that part of it was that, that we had this amazing organization and amazing group of people that allowed us to leverage so many different skill sets and experiences and and people who weren't afraid to say no um 
And part of it was I, I was probably just young and cocky and thought, of course we can do that. I, I know for a fact that we always, I always said, yes, you know, I'm for everything. Um, you know, and when, when, when uh, we decided to go with the, the, the tiered snow uh, seating area, everybody was nervous about it, but we did get a chance to test it out the, the year before during our test events. And it seemed like a good, like it was going to work. Obviously, we did it in, on a much smaller scale and for the games. We put it on the drawings. We blew snow for two months to make that pile. And the, the resort shaped it into that standing area, and it worked great. Um, again, I, I, I got to give credit to, to my bosses and, and the other bosses in the organization because they did give us those, that that ability to do it. And, and, you know, I think we were very responsible with it. We, we didn't do everything that, that we thought we could do. We didn't, we didn't, we never, I mean, for me, of course, uh, you know, safety comes first. Um, we even had guardrails on that in, in the snow, which was a, a bizarre um, aspect of that, but they were actual guardrails and they, they met code. Um well, code-ish, I guess, right? There's not really a code about, you know, if there's a six-foot drop on a snow ledge, you have to have a, a guardrail. We we kind of adapted deck railing code for that. Um, but again, I think it was just this, it, it wasn't necessarily just, you know, people saying, go for it. It was people saying, you know what, I think we can do it. And then we worked through the, the challenges to establish an argument that said, you know what, we can do this. And, you know, in Sydney, I think that they took a lot of, a lot of those opportunities and, and, you know, I was amazed. I only went over there I, uh, to work on the games during the games as part of a secondment program, but it was such an eye-opening experience and it was such a huge, huge event. And it, it was inspiring and just absolutely encouraging and it really did make me think we can do everything we can we can create anything we want and you know certain aspects of that were they did come true you know we did things in salt lake that had never been done before same thing in vancouver and the same thing in rio and and all subsequent games. I think that's one of the, the great things about the games environment and quite frankly, big events environments is that we are looking for the newest and the coolest and the more, you know, the, the more we can increase that customer experience, the better it ultimately turns out to be. And that was one of those key aspects of Salt Lake, right? The customer experience was so important. So... Salt Lake ends. What are you thinking? Uh, I go back to San Francisco. I go find another job. What happens when the when the games are done? You know, and you you've yeah. wrapped up all your post games reports and and uh, you know taking care of everything and and uh, you're thinking, well, what do I do now? And like everybody, I, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Athens, Athens, and I'm going to go to Torino, then I'm going to go here, then I'm going to go there. And the reality of that is these organizations don't just want to be flooded by the 
you know, the operators of the game's past. They want, they want to do it themselves. Um, and so I, I made, I'd say cursory level efforts to get to either Torino or to, um, or to Athens. But I, I, I got a call from, from the Salt Palace Convention Center and they had basically disbanded their, um, their event staff for the games um, and for like a year. And then they suddenly were faced with a reorganization um, and a lot of, of sort of residual Olympic damages, if you will. Um, and so I, I, I got a great opportunity to go work for, for the Salt Palace. And I did that for, for about a year, helped them to reorganize their event department. We brought in a new person to, um, to be the director of the events there. I, I wasn't interested in being that person at that time. I wanted to have an upward, you know, career and, and kudos to that guy, Dan, he's, he's still there now and he's the general manager of the facility. So, you know, I, I, I don't take credit for his upward mobility. I just take credit for, for, you know, mentoring him. I don't actually think that, but, um, you know, I, it, it does make you feel good though, when people get, you know, get these promotions and they, they actually, you know, get to their dream jobs. Um, but you know, that then introduced me to Salt Lake County, Salt Lake County then hired me to take over the, the center for the arts. And I had to do an, a, a complete revamp of that. And then I made a career a questionable career choice and I got into the political realm and I worked directly for a mayor and I loved it because I did get this, this incredible exposure um, into the community and working with lots of different facets within uh, Salt Lake County and with other uh, organizations throughout year um, throughout Utah um, but it, it's a harsh climate, um, especially when you're a, you know, you're a political appointee, working in a mayor's cabinet, and folks are gunning for you all the time. Um, and you know, I'm a guy that digs holes and fills them up. You point, I dig. And you know, the operational planning is is my thing. I, again, I liked being in the community i liked that that process the communication and and sort of understanding the challenges that we face throughout the community and and um you know that that was really my kickstart to working in public health as well um but i i just i wasn't happy in that political environment and out of the blue, I got a call from Vancouver, from Adam Gray, to come out to Vancouver. And I, I, I took that uh, opportunity, and I, I was very happy to do that. I loved working in Vancouver. And, and, you know, even Canada, right across the border, they have a different perspective and a different way of doing things. And, and again, I had to keep my mind open and learn, and I loved it. Let's go to Vancouver then. Um, you you had Salt Lake experience, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, not every city is saying, "Hey, you know, everybody that worked previous games, come work for us." 
because we want to put our own spin on it. We want to do our own thing. So how did that transition work? You know, you, you, you've been doing the non-Olympic stuff for a few years in various capacities with venues, convention centers, mm -hmm. working in government, now coming back into it uh, after being out of it for a few years. What was that yeah. transition like? You know, I, I was so happy to be back into the games mode and, you know, planning and and having venue, you know, venue plans and all this, all these other great things. And we're going to build this and we're going to build that. Um, I, I got to say, like, like I said, the, I did not expect Canada to be as significantly different from the U.S. as it really turned out to be. And I think I got lucky. Um, Working in that political environment and, you know, the constant pressure of that really gave me this opportunity to, to sit back and say, you know what, I have to listen more. I have to talk less, listen more, uh, find allies and, and bring people on board and, you know, approach things not from a I know this is best standpoint, but really a we would like to see this happen and you know, these are the reasons why. And so in Canada, and I'm, that's not to say I don't talk too much anyway, I always do. Um, but I think I just had a different approach to it and, and a much, I guess, a kinder, gentler Chris. Um, and so that actually helped me in, in Canada to, to realize that, wow, they, they do have a more inclusive um, perspective and, and they did have uh, you know, some really interesting ideas that were were being thrown out there. And some of them were kind of challenging, uh, even from an operational standpoint. Some of them were challenging from a sort of that, that social experiment perspective. And, um, you know, the, I'm not going to say there weren't there weren't some difficulties, you know, the the decision making process was much slower than it is in the States. And and that sometimes frustrated me. But, you know, as I said before, I had to kind of step back and and sort of rethink where I was, appreciate where I was, of course. And that's one of those key elements is, I mean, we're planning the most incredible event in the world. We have to appreciate it, even though there are bad days and good, you know, there are more good days than bad ones. And this is a really amazing opportunity. Um, you know, so, so I think that what I was able to do was, was embed myself with, you know, in the organizing committee, really, really work hard to understand those cultural nuances to the best of my knowledge and never think that I know everything about Canada because I've lived there for two months or whatever amount of time, but really just continue learning and learning and learning and changing and adapting as as necessary. Absolutely. There were some crazy things that, that happened. There were some challenges that I thought insurmountable, but ultimately we we're able to put all the pieces together. And and again, I I think that that communal aspect of of the Canadian culture was 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 a bit heavy. Uh, it was a heavy load to carry, but 
once we got there, it really worked. And, and I, I really appreciate, um, you know, the partners and the, and the community that we worked with in, in Vancouver. I, I was up in Whistler at the, um, I'm working mostly with, with the resort community up there, but it, it was really a good experience for me. And one that I, I, to this day, I still, I still utilize those lessons as well. So, you know, I just keep booking all these experiences and life lessons and, and I use them. Well, coming back to the beginning, your career really starts with a seismic event in San Francisco, a literal <laughs> seismic event. But these two organizing committees that you talked about, Salt Lake and Vancouver, were also hit with figurative seismic events. Uh, Salt Lake had two of them, which were the bid scandal in 1999. And then you had 9-11, which happens yeah. months before the, the the start of the games. Vancouver gets swallowed up in the world financial crisis, right? Which has a significant impact on revenues uh, for the games and, you know, causes a lot of downstream impacts on your planning and so on and so forth. So, you know, kind of walk us through how you handled these seismic events. You know, the the nine eleven situation, which mm -hmm. happened right before games. Uh, then you have the world financial crisis, which happens about eighteen months before games time in Vancouver. You know, how how did you how did you and your team, the people that you work with, deal with these incredible challenges? Yeah. Um. 9-11 obviously was a shock to everybody. And, and I guess I'd started out with a, a, a good personal foundation in that when I, when I, you know, was involved in this earthquake, I immediately went out and then started taking FEMA training for disasters and, and terrorism and all kinds of other uh, bad things, I guess, if you will. Um, and then because our department was was based in venues, we had to go through a lot of the the uh, security training and F with the FBI and the Secret Service. So we had kind of a perspective on on secure venues, and obviously we all knew that that uh, the Munich Olympics, what what the fallout from that was. We also had um, good experiences and and people to to kind of coach us along from from Atlanta. But when 9-11 hit, that that really was a shock to the system. And and again, I gotta give credit to to the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and to the way uh, the United States uh government, all of the government agencies we worked with and, and the state and, and local uh police and, and first response agencies you know, it gave us this ability to say, you know what, we want to do this thing. We want to prove to the world that we can still host this global stage um, event and we can we can still do it and we're not going to let these terrorists defeat us. And I, I think that the the approach that that we took was was a realistic one. We weren't trying to, you know, rub anybody's face in it. We were t just trying to say, you know what, this is this is an extremely powerful and, and and unfortunate act of terrorism that happened, but we are going to continue. And and you know that message uh, resonated from from Mitt Romney uh, through the entire organization. As I said earlier, Fraser Bullock was always 
uh, supportive of our efforts in the operational side. And, and I think that it also gave everybody a, a great, uh, you know, it, it really created that familial aspect and, and that we had a job to do a task that, that all eyes were going to be upon. And, um, you know, we pulled together and, and we did it. No question. It made it harder. No question the challenges and the budget issues and the and the security and the fear um, was there, but I, I think that you know we were able to to get past that and deliver what i I would consider you know one of the best Olympic experience experiences I've ever had, and it didn't feel like a police state. It felt like an Olympic games and that was that was a great thing. Um, you know, moving on to Vancouver. The budget. It was tough. It was always, from the moment I arrived, it was always a discussion. And then the bottom fell out and that discussion just became louder and louder and louder. And um, I recall a couple of a couple of times where we actually had uh, IOC COCOMs or, or other um, IOC meetings going on. And I was, I was creating and recreating and re and changing and redeveloping our venue budget three times in the week so that we could, you know, kind of put the pieces together. And sometimes money had to be moved from here to go over to another area. And then we would have to rejigger our plans so that we could, you know, still have the experience that we were looking for. And that was a really tough, that was a really tough, um, uh, exercise, but again, one that I think, um, you know, especially when we went to to Rio, we realized that having a a a well connected uh, financial arm, one that was embedded into the specific venue, all the way down to the venue teams, not just functional areas, but having you know that close connection is really important, um, you know, and then then other aspects like. Um, for lack of a better term, maybe, you know, uh, handshake deals on uses of venues or properties. That's a, you know, hindsight being 2020, I think that's a huge risk. And one of the things that we, we've been talking about here in, in, um, uh, with the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation as the, as the plans for a new bid come into place, venue use agreements are one of the first things that uh, they started working on because, you know, my, 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 my uh, discussions with Colin Hilton about that have always revolved around, you know, when we didn't have, when we don't have the venue use agreements and we start moving forward with, significant planning, we start backing ourselves up into corners. And I think that the host cities are a lot more sophisticated than they used to be. And, and they're not interested in just hosting the games at all cost, right? They have to be very responsible. And I think that we have to be responsible partners. And again, that, that financial aspect on the, on the revenue side, but also on the the um, you know just the general contractual and expectation side has to be it has to be front and center and and it it definitely makes uh, it could make your life either a nightmare depending on you know 
your your negotiation with with the other side or it could make your life so much easier and i think in general it makes it easier right do it in advance absolutely we're we're not going to always be able to predict the financial future of the games or of of our revenue our sponsorships things like that but if we do have plans and we have again that connectivity to our our uh, financial planners we can make it work and that's exactly what happened in in uh in both Vancouver and Rio right we we started seeing revenue issues so we adjusted accordingly i want to come back to the venue use agreements and and you know in those environments it's so important to work with all of these stakeholders right whether the, the mm -hmm. venue owners the the various uh, public authorities and municipalities right. uh uh, the the various government agencies which you talked about with nine eleven and and uh, uh, first responders and and so on and so forth. So, you know, what are some of the lessons that you learned throughout your experience? Really being on both sides of the fence because you've been on the government side of things and you've also been on the uh, venue side of things and the organizing yeah. committee side of things. So when you look at the you have a view uh, from multiple perspectives, right? So. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned that's helped you to work so effectively with so many different stakeholders? Because they all have their own objectives, right? We all, you know, whether you're a venue owner or an operator, or you're the person responsible for public safety for your county, or yeah. you're delivering the event, you know, everybody has their different, uh, their different overall uh, strategic objectives, but you all, you've, you've got to bring all these folks together to achieve a common goal. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult. There's no question about it. And, you know, I talked about, you know, how I hoarded information when I was, what I was an intern. Well, that same sort of data collection follows me throughout my career, or maybe it's pushing me. I'm not sure. Um, but but being able to actually put together plans that we can back up with with what we would consider to be realistic predictions or facts or or previous experiences, um, I think that 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 really goes a long way and and bringing you know the stakeholders to the table to to discuss this openly, not not to hide something or to but to to say you know what when when we need to transport 20 or 30,000 people into you know park city a a, a city of 8,000 people or 6,000 people you know transportation is a real issue traffic is a real issue that needs to be managed and it needs to be managed very carefully um and the same is said for any olympic venue right Lots of people are going to show up and lots of people are going to leave. Sometimes they're going to do it twice a day and they'll do it for 17 days in a row. There is no city in the world that hosts events for 17 days in a row all at once. And nobody can say, oh, yeah, I already did that. Um, but again, bringing those folks to the table, being truthful, being honest about where we stand and what the expectations are and not leaving meetings saying, well, you know, I thought they were going to pay for that or right. We, we have to be very clear and, and establish those, 
the expectations, the boundaries, the level of service that we want to provide, and and, and to be realistic. I mean, gold-plated gold toilet seats are probably really nice, but I don't think that we need them, right? So let's, we have to, not that we've ever budgeted for gold-plated toilet seats, but, um, you know, there are certain levels of service that are just not achievable, and we have to be very clear about that. We know that inside of bid documents, everybody is frolicking through the fields, holding hands, and kids will learn lessons beyond uh, your wildest dreams, and everybody will become a gold medalist, and the reality is is that we still operate in the in the environment that we operate and there are always challenges and you know the financial parts of those challenges are are absolutely real but there's also the social and and you know and, and those the the social sides of those those challenges need to be considered as well and we have to be empathetic to the needs of the local community the needs of the athletes the needs of the of the visitors and the spectators um and again we want to create not just a great visitors experience but a great experience for everybody especially the people that live and work and have to deal with you know this thing this behemoth that's coming in that they may or may not have anything to do with and you know being empathetic and being able to reach out to the community and you know you'd asked about some some challenges and and uh you know both salt lake vancouver or all three salt lake rio and um vancouver i had i i was at I had public meetings where we discussed were open houses where we we walked through the plans and people were worried about it and they were worried about the impacts and rightfully so. Um, but again, if we can, if we approach this with a realistic attitude and and we bring those those stakeholders to the table, sometimes they're not helpful. Right? There's no question. Not all stakeholders are helpful. But we know that we can leverage and and work with those those stakeholders and and we can do the best that we can, um, you know, as opposed to just saying, "Oh, don't worry, it'll be fine." That's that's rarely effective. Well, I, I'm looking down. I'm like, "Holy cow, we've been going for an hour." <laughs> <laughs> So I can I want, go for many more. You know, that's I know we're that's just why I hope you I hope you would edit it down. <laughs> uh, I know we're just scratching the surface on the stories because it's impossible to condense 30 years of uh career experience and knowledge and learning into you know a one hour conversation. But I I do want to touch on Rio a little bit because mm -hmm. uh Vancouver ends. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up getting involved in Rio. And I would imagine that that would be uh, a challenging transition in some ways as well, because uh, a different way of working down there. And then you've got language on top of that, which mm -hmm. you didn't really have to deal with so much when you were working in Salt Lake and Vancouver. So so tell us a little bit about that transition from uh, Vancouver down to Rio. Yeah, it, it wasn't a direct transition. I, I came back to Utah and I worked. For, I, that's when I wrote all of our plans for the health department and things like that. Um, obviously, going from 
the United States to Brazil was a, a, a big cultural change. Um, I had been there, I had vacationed there, and I had a great time. I loved it. Um, but it was definitely a completely new um, environment and one that uh, obviously my my previous levels of comfort were, you know, they I, I was relegated to a level of comfort in the office that uh, that I enjoyed previously. But then the other three quarters of the day, I, I had to sort of navigate this new environment that I had never, you know, even as a tourist, you don't experience, you know, everyday life. Um, but again, I I just approached it with an open mind, and and I quickly discovered that that in Brazil they have a different um, way of of working through the projects and and a different timeline. So I had to I had to adapt to the adapt to the Brazilian timeline. I relied heavily on on the people who were on my team to you know to be very honest with me and tell me if I'm making mistakes or if I'm not approaching something correctly. And, and, you know, I, I do, I do think that the folks who are on my team were great and in, in being honest with me. And, and again, I, I sort of took the lessons from my, my previous bosses who gave me those, those, you know, the benefit of the doubt to go out there and plan something extraordinary. um, Even if it was kind of a half-assed plan, but um, you know, they, they, they did a really nice job and, and I was there to kind of help guide and focus us and, and put us into that planning groove that, that met with the IOC, um, responsibilities, uh, or the IOC methods and expectations. And I mean, it was, it was definitely difficult to do that because, you know the IOC does want us to do things in in a very specific manner, and that manner doesn't necessarily bend to the the Brazilian way of doing things. And um, you know, I found it fascinating. I loved it. Um, it obviously, if it was frustrating. It was frustrating from a language perspective because I was I was learning Portuguese, uh, you know, as I, as I went along and, you know, we talked about venue use agreements. Well, how ridiculous is it to think that some gringo can walk in and negotiate this complex contract with a guy who's speaking Portuguese and I don't speak it right. These are the, you know, that's the traditional role of venue management. And I didn't have the skill, the language skills to do that. I could read the, the contract. I could walk everybody through and whether the other person spoke English or not. And they, most people, you know, most of the folks that, that we were working with did, but again, there's this, these cultural nuances that were significantly different. And, you know, I had to reach out to people in the organization and even folks outside of our organization to really, you know, help, help us develop those, those, um, venue use agreements or even plans uh, that would affect communities surrounding venues. And, you know, there, there was a, a high degree of willingness to help, um, but not a high degree of, of experience with, with those kinds of, of elements. And, 
And, um, you know, ultimately what, what I realized was the more effective route to, to venue use agreements was for me and our legal team to, to be able to review the venue use agreements, but to have a native speaker and, and, you know, in particular, our, our chief financial officer as the, as the person who really headed up that that venue use agreement uh, aspect and i think that that was you know as much as you know we like to check the boxes i did this and i did that it's so much more important to to do what's right for the organization sometimes it's not right i i struggled for a while to try to to get it to work um but ultimately, you know, we, we just had to go to the resources that could do it and get it done. And it was done and, and it worked. So then you, you, you finish your time at Rio, your, your tenure with Rio is over. Uh, do you come back to Park City and start working for the city right away? When you were doing the work for the city before you went to Rio, were you doing that as a, as a contractor or were you employed yeah. by the city? Yeah, for to the for Summit County, I was a contractor initially. Um, when I came back, it just happened to be fortuitous timing. Um, uh, somebody was leaving the county. The the former emergency manager. I stepped into that role, um, and because I had already worked in the health department, I sort I I took on an expanded role as the public health emergency manager and all hazards. So earthquake, fire, killer bees, all of that. Um, and that was a tough, that was a tough thing to do because they're, they're two full-time jobs. Um, and they're, they're two very interesting jobs, right? I learned, I learned to become a, a and I got my credential to be a, my red card for wildland firefighting. But that's a career in an in and of itself, and and it's it's hard, and that's a that's a job that the people who do wildland firefighting we should thank them every single day because that is a harsh environment, and they are dedicated. You know, I got my credentials so that I could be at the fire scene doing my emergency management stuff and not be in their way. I mean, that when I when I think about, it, I just didn't want to be in somebody's way. Um, you know, when I, when I came back, you know, I, I realized that there were a bunch of different, uh, you know, FEMA and, and CDC have all these requirements for planning, uh, elements that need to be delivered. And then every X number of years, you have to, uh, um, review those plans and update them. Um, and then all of a sudden we got a, a literally just a nebulous um email from from the state of Utah uh the Department of Health and Human Services that said we're tracking this virus it seems to be emanating out of Wuhan China and it has the potential to become a global pandemic much the same as H1N1 and then the rest is history well uh if i recall chris um the the first i don't know if outbreak is the right term 
but the first cases or concentration of cases were there in Summit County, right? We 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 saw uh, there there were a few cases uh, that popped up there, and so uh, um, I, it, it appeared from an outsider's perspective um, that Summit County was one of the first counties to 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 be impacted by this and then to respond to it. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, you're right. Summit County is a ski town, so it's a ski vacation area. So we have lots of people visiting and, and lots of people from other countries who are just here to work for the season. And, and uh, so we, we get a lot of traffic in and out, you know, our, our population swells five times what it, what would, what it would normally be on the off season. Um, The challenges that, that we faced immediately were number one, we couldn't track who was sick or who wasn't sick unless they contacted us. Um, And we didn't have the tools anyway. And, and so, you know, when, when we started seeing people reporting, you know, going to the hospitals, and then we started seeing these, these sort of upticks at the hospital. And a lot of those, you know, not everybody was a local. Some people were just visiting and suddenly they're really sick. Um, and then, you know, all around the state and all around the country, we start seeing this, this pandemic grow and grow and grow and grow. And even though, our numbers were were seemingly small comparatively. Um, they were significant to our population base and our res- the resources that we had available. And so, our response and thankfully we had a um, our our uh, director of, of public health and the deputy director were very proactive. They were absolutely just so proactive about getting our plans in place and starting to deliver response, right? Starting to respond to this pandemic, even though we didn't have tools. And so, you know, our, our first response efforts were communication. Our second response efforts were, you know, do whatever you can to limit your exposure. If you feel ill, you are ill. And, you know, that messaging was really important for us. Um, and to make sure that we understood the differences and the nuances of our populations in Summit County, because we have a, you know, a ski resort side and we have a rural side and a farming side and a ranching side and, and, you know, second homeowners and primary homeowners and and everything in between. And so, again, this is typical of public health. We we have to understand our audience. We have to uh, really make a very, very specific effort to understand those persons who are at the highest risk. And, you know, for COVID, and, and it's true even today, the persons who are at the highest risk are the elderly and um, and persons with with comorbidities, right? Maybe a, a, an additional diabetes or, or RSV or, uh, you know, lung cancer or something like that, like folks who are at those highest risks need to be focused on. And that's, that's really how all of the, the COVID planning started to evolve, right? Start with the riskiest populations and work your way down. Um, 
again, I think that because we had already started our planning, because we were already we already had that mindset of of immediate response, and we had a community that was 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 very willing and and helpful in that regard. We were able to to implement as fast as possible, and we literally received, you know, when we received our tests the next day we were testing. When we received the vaccines, the next day we were delivering vaccines. And again, hats off to our volunteers because they, they went above and beyond. We had people who were volunteering for more than 30 shifts, which is more than, than people volunteered during the games. And we weren't giving them cool uniforms and, and you know, uh, tchotchkes and swatch watches and and uh you know all the all the swag that goes along with the games but uh, again people care about their community and that's one of those aspects of games planning that if you are not in tune with your community if you don't know what your community needs or expectations are you're just going to have an event inside of a you know it doesn't matter where your event is because if you're isolated it it's not really the i think the olympic what the olympics stands for right and that is that that true flavor of the of the host city wow well this has been a fantastic uh now hour and 20 minutes conversation yeah. uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed it uh to wrap us up two questions and the first one is uh you were given an opportunity more than 30 years ago to come into this business as an intern, right? And and there are people who might be watching this or listening to this who might be looking at events as a potential uh, career choice for them. So mm -hmm. uh, what advice would you share to those who are interested in or are just starting out in this, in this yeah. crazy event business? Um, well, first and foremost, it is hard work. There's no question about it. From the planning to the delivery to the wrap up, it is hard work. Um, so you should be prepared for that. But inside of that hard work, there are thousands of opportunities for you to, 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 to really feel rewarded, right? And sometimes those rewards are not outward or, or or coming from you, coming to you from the out uh, from the outside. They're not always your boss saying, "Great job." You know, as event planners, we compartmentalize into these little tiny deliverables, and we link them all together, and it ultimately equals a successful game. Games. We can't always claim success for the total um, event experience, but. Every step of the way, we plan for something. And when we accomplish that, that is an accomplishment. It's a, an accomplishment that's worth celebrating either personally or within your team or within your function or within the organization. But everybody contributes. And that, first and foremost, I think that that's an aspect that that if you can, if, if, if you can realize that every single person contributes and every person has value and you you're comfortable with your tiny value contribution, you'll do great. You're not always going to be the star of transportation or of, of, you know, logistics, 
but the rest of those venues couldn't operate without your your part in it and you know we end up digging a lot of holes and filling them up we change our mind constantly in 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 these big events and and quite frankly all the plans that we write are only plans once we get to implementation everything can and will change and so again you should be happy with the contributions you make and you should also be happy to change those because we can't we can't actually deliver anything unless we're first and foremost prepared to deliver something different than what we thought um, because things happen plans change humans once you introduce humans to the to the equation all bets are off but as long as we can make those changes and and be satisfied right we can't be married to the plan that we wrote we have to be married to the plan that we wrote that has the ability to change to adjust to adapt to whatever the circumstances are long days long nights but at the end of the at the end of the the event you're you're part of something special and it is so rewarding and so amazing and and I'll tell you every single time I've had to give that you know that final speech to my my teams I've never been able to get through it without getting choked up and you know having to take a, a few minutes so that I could I can regain my composure but it's because it is that it's it's something that is emotionally draining and fulfilling at the same time it's a spectacular thing some of these things are once in a lifetime opportunities how much more could you possibly ask for it is absolutely fabulous so all right chris it. well thank you for spending an afternoon of your extremely busy schedule uh having a conversation with me Didn't i appreciate you have a second question Oh, the, my, this is coming to my second question. My okay. second question is Sorry. Uh, uh, for people who have been listening to this conversation, they want to learn more about uh, events. They want to understand more about public health and safety. Uh, they just want to learn more about those kind of mm -hmm. things. What's the best way for folks to actually reach out and connect with you? Yeah, I'm I'm on LinkedIn, so find me on LinkedIn. You're more than welcome to to send me a note, or you can just send me an email through uh, to my work um, or my personal email. I don't care. Uh, so c l crowley at gmail dot com. Obviously, that's my personal, or c crowley at summitcounty.org. And you know, I started in the event business, and I continue to sort of add my my emergency management and and cdc credentials to that and and to be honest i i think that the event business is applicable to so many different areas and so many different aspects of of our lives um you know i i've never seen any limitations and like i said when i I, I I have to give credit to to uh, the Summit County Health Department because when when I was first hired, I talked to them about Olympic planning. They were talking to me about pandemics, and my boss 
he he was here for the Olympics and and that light bulb went on and I could see him when when he he finally connected those two and he said you know what we're going to go for this because this makes sense to me I've I saw how the Olympics worked and the pandemic planning that's what I was I was trying to draw this link between Olympic planning and pandemic planning and you know I saw that light bulb go off above his head and it did work. And, you know, kudos to him for taking that chance. But again, I think that the skills that you build here and, and quite frankly, you get this opportunity to work with so many people and so many interesting uh, aspects and tasks, and you get exposed to things that you would never in a million years think you could be, um, you know, exposed to. There, there are limitless opportunities. So go for it. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. I personally have had a lot of light bulb moments just in our hour-long conversation here. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Listeners, viewers, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again soon. Thanks so much, Chris. Great. Thank you, Christian. Appreciate it.